0: Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Centre Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. And we want to welcome you here at Central Campus, also those of you who are joining us online, uh, along with all of you who are meeting together at one of our regional campuses in Airdrie in Bridgeland, down in South Calgary, and also Crowford Theatres in Northwest Calgary. Now, you know, having been part of this church now for 35 years, um, uh, you know, you guys are all kind of part of our extended family, and so every once in a while, you're just going to have to put up with me. You know, I'm going to pull out some slides of our family and just entertain you for about 25 minutes. No, that's not true. But I just quickly want to introduce you to the latest addition to our family, Um, uh, and uh, that is our new granddaughter, Zoe Eden Shore. And uh, she's daughter. (laughs) She's the daughter of our son, Jonathan, and Kristen Shore, and uh, sister to Cadence. So uh, we now have 12 little disciples, which is awesome. And we are praying that, of course, they'll all come to know Jesus, and they'll join the rest of us in uh, sharing our love for Jesus with whoever Uh, we run into in life. So, okay. Uh, We're in a study of the book of James. And once again, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the second chapter of this compelling letter. I'm going to invite you to stand with me now and join me in reading um, the scripture text together. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for James, the brother of Jesus, and the words that you gave him, Lord, that you inspired him to write. And, uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us now to fully understand, or at least more completely understand, the intent of this section of Scripture. And, uh, Lord, you would uh, focus our minds... You would remove distractions, and you would soften our hearts, and you would give us the courage, Lord, to step out and to do whatever it is you're asking us to do, for we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. This past May, Gwen and I took another group of people, mostly from our church, on a pilgrimage to Israel. On this particular trip there were um, some in the group who worked for uh, the airline that we traveled with and therefore were able to travel very inexpensively. The problem is they were on standby the entire trip, which means they often had to wait until moments before the flight was to leave before they knew for certain that they would be on that flight. Now if you've ever flown on standby or Know a friend who has, you probably noticed that there is a significant difference in the anxiety level between those who have their boarding pass and those who are on standby. Uh, In our group, those who had their seats secured were either laughing and talking, uh, reading, uh, or were just sound asleep and drooling. (laughs) On the other hand, those who were on standby. They were pacing. They were praying. And they were asking those who weren't asleep to join them in praying. Now, all of that changed as soon as they got their boarding pass. I mean, you could just see the tension begin to leak from their faces and their bodies. They kissed each other. They hugged everyone in sight. And then they settled down and fell asleep and drooled like the rest of them. You see, there is a significant difference between knowing something is true and hoping something is true. Now, hoping that you will make a flight, I mean, can be a big deal. But it is nothing compared with hoping that you're going to make it to heaven. Now, The Bible teaches that we don't have to live with the anxiety of not knowing whether we're going to go to heaven or not. And 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. You don't have to be in a state of constant anxiety and panic over this issue. You can know you have eternal life. Go back a couple of verses in 1 John chapter 5 and John tells us that the key to that peace, to that assurance that we have is putting your faith in Jesus Christ. This is what he writes. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John says whoever has put their trust, has put their faith in Jesus, has eternal life. The question is, however, what is the nature of that faith in Jesus Christ? In other words, what kind of faith is it that actually saves us? How can we know if our faith is real or if it's counterfeit? This is the question that James is addressing in the passage that we just read together James is not disputing the fact that we are saved by grace through faith he's not contradicting as some people think he's not contradicting what Paul teaches in the book of Romans or elsewhere his concern here James's concern is that we really understand That there is a faith that is true and real, and there is a faith that is false and fake. That there is a faith that is alive, and there is a faith that is dead. His focus in this chapter is not on how we are saved, but what saving faith looks like. And we need to keep this in mind as we study this passage. And so first of all, says Paul, true faith is more than just knowing the right things. Look at verse 14. What good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? James is referring here to the person who claims to be a Christian and really appears to be a follower of Christ because he knows the Bible quite well, knows lots of theology, facts, and history about the Christian faith. But the concern is it can be only a head faith, not a heart faith. They know all about God, but they don't know God. There's little or no emotion in their lives. They can do without worship. They can skip what you just went through because they just want facts. There's no passion to love God more intimately or loving others in practical ways. They know their Bible, they've got their theology all straight, but their hearts haven't changed. They look spiritual at church. But they treat their spouses and family terribly at home. Or they're negative, vindictive, hypercritical at work. It's a head faith only. It's not translating into day-to-day life. Now, while knowing the Scriptures and knowing things like the character and the nature of God is a vital part of true faith... James implies here that by itself, a pure intellectual faith is a false faith. It cannot save a person. Secondly, a true faith, says James, is more than feeling the right things. Look at verse 15. James says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed but does, not, does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? The picture that James is painting here is a person becoming aware of another person in the church who is in great need for basic care and being emotionally moved by the situation, perhaps to the point of even getting down next to them and praying with them that God would provide for their needs. But aside from this show of emotion and compassion, doing nothing to actually help the person. You see, you can be emotionally moved in a service like this, or you can be emotionally moved by a story that you become aware of, and never do anything about it. You can go to church, you can hear the sad story of someone who's in need, or a ministry that desperately needs volunteers or financial support, and you can feel deeply about it, even get a quiver in your liver. And you can leave the church saying to your friends and family, oh my, that was a moving story. I really hope that someone does something about it. I really hope that someone gives to that cause. I I really hope that volunteers, someone volunteers in that ministry. But never do anything about it yourself. Now James is not suggesting here that people of true faith will meet the need of every person that they encounter or that they will turn a blind eye to those who repeatedly take advantage of Christians and and make no effort to be responsible for providing for themselves. Now what he's he's, um, saying is people of true faith have a heart that wants to help. They have a heart that always seeks to do what they can with the resources they have to give what they can. And even go the further step if necessary to seek additional support uh, for the person in crisis if needed. I want you to notice two things in this example that James gives here in verse 15. First of all, the people in need that he refers to are members of the church. In other words, these are people that we know. He calls them brothers and sisters. These are people who are part of our church family and actively involved in our church. Actively involved in our community group or who's serving with us in the kitchen or or in children's ministry or youth ministry or wherever. Furthermore, notice they aren't asking for help to pay off a huge debt that they've accumulated or, or to take over their mortgage payments. No, they're asking for the basics. They're asking for food and warm clothing. James is talking about those in our church who are in dire need, who are hungry and completely and utterly in trouble. And he's saying people with true faith don't just get moved emotionally by needs like this. They act. They get involved. They, 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 they're generous. They, they want to give. They want to volunteer out of their love for God. They have this inner desire to be on mission with God. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Now, this is a rather interesting thought. I mean, how do you show someone your faith if there's no action? If there's no attitude change? If there's no fruit? Obviously the answer is you can't. And that is James' point here. If a person has no inclination to help others to serve or to give, I mean, they can go from church to church, from one emotional worship experience to another. The truth is, a faith like that Says James is dead. And then, thirdly, a true faith is more than just believing the right things. Some people find a false spiritual confidence in believing the right things only. They believe in God, in Jesus, the Bible, the gospel, the Holy Spirit. In fact, research indicates that nearly 90% of Canadians believe in God and over 80% believe that Jesus is the divine son of God. Now, that, that may sound really impressive until you realize how many demons believe in God? 100% of them. And this is James' point in verse 19. He says, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Do you realize that there are no demons who are atheists? Kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? They totally believe in God, and they shudder. They know the Bible probably better than we do. They've been around a long time, and it makes them tremble. True faith is more than believing. Just saying, I believe in God, is not enough to get me to heaven. Even the devil knows that. Now, make no mistake, I'm not saying believing is unimportant. No, what we believe as I said a moment ago about God and about Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the gospel and the Bible, all those things are very important because it is the faith, it's the foundation upon which we stand, and it's the hope of the world. And whether we realize it or not, what we do is determined by what we really believe, not what we say we believe, but what we really believe. But belief in itself is not enough. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says you can profess all the right things. You can know your Bible from beginning to end. Your theology can be completely biblical. But if you're not following me, if you're picking and choosing what you're going to apply to your life, if you have no inclination to do what Jesus is calling you to be and to do, James says your faith is a dead faith. True faith is more than believing the right things. And then, fourthly, a true faith is more than doing the right things. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Some people substitute a vital relationship with Jesus Christ with being a good person. A person who lives the good life, does good to other people, follows the golden rule. They're convinced that what you believe isn't all that important. What really matters is being a good person and doing good to others. And yet, in the same passage that I just quoted in Matthew 7 a moment ago, Jesus goes on to give this warning in verse 22. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Again, this is Jesus speaking. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, that's the key to true faith. Being a friend of Jesus. Being in a relationship with him. Jesus warns here that all good works for him, all good deeds, even the power to exercise his name won't mean anything to him if we're trying to impress him with our good deeds rather than trusting in him. And or if we're seeking his power and the demonstration of that power more than his friendship. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Are good works a demonstration of our salvation? Yes, they can be, but not always. Because some people do good things for reasons other than their love of Jesus Christ I mean you can do good deeds and have no faith or no relationship with God at all the second question though is this are our good works a means of obtaining salvation never we are not saved by our good works We are saved to do good works. And church, we must never get the two confused. So then, if true faith is more than knowing, feeling, believing, and doing the right things, what then is true faith? Well, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, you see that? We were created in Christ Jesus, we were saved We were made alive spiritually in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now please listen to me very carefully here. This verse and many others like it clearly articulates that we are saved by grace alone. In other words, by what God has done for us through Christ on the cross of Calvary. We are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Period. Romans 1:17 says the righteous will live by faith. No one can work their way into God's family. We all have sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God. We have broken God's laws, and as lawbreakers, as sinners, We either do what people of every other religion outside of Christianity is attempting to do, and that is to pay for their sins, which is not only a legalistic slavery, but it's impossible. Or, we put our faith and trust in Jesus, who out of his love for us and by his grace made it possible for us to be presented blameless, righteous before God by dying in our place, taking our punishment upon Himself and paying for our sins with His own blood. When it comes to our salvation, There is absolutely nothing that we can do but put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when we do, we are made righteous in the sight of a holy God. And we are set free to live the life that he intends for us to live. You see, in the scripture passage that we're studying today, James is not saying that good works has to be added to faith to make it real. No, our works, as I said, do not save us. Faith in Jesus is what saves us. But our works show that our faith is real. He's essentially saying, if you truly have put your faith in Christ, if you truly have a close and growing relationship with Jesus Christ, then your life will be different. It will be changed in a good way. Your attitudes will begin to be changed. And you're going to be doing what you sense God's calling you to do. You see, true faith is not just saying, I believe the facts. True faith is giving your life over into the hands of the one that you say you believe in. Let me give you an illustration. True faith is not just saying, I believe my parachute will open. When you're in the plane and you're thinking about jumping. You can sit there all day and say, I believe, I believe, I believe true faith is actually putting on that parachute and jumping out of the plane. True faith is about a live, active relationship with Jesus Christ, not a sterile religion of do's and don'ts. And it's out of that vibrant relationship with Jesus where he will lead us and guide us to do things that we want to do out of love for him. In verse 20, James uses Abraham to illustrate what true faith looks like. He refers to two significant events in the life of Abraham. We read about the first in Genesis 15. When God made a covenant with Abraham, and he told him that his wife Sarah would conceive a child, a son, and through that son, he would have as many descendants as the stars in the sky, and that through him, the whole world would be blessed one day, referring prophetically to the coming of Jesus. Now, biologically speaking, this was an impossibility because Abraham and Sarah not only had no children at that point when that promise was made, but Sarah was approaching about 70 years of age. However, even though it seemed like an impossibility to Abraham for God's promise to come true, the Bible says in Genesis 15:6, Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was saved by faith alone. Think about it. What did Abraham do to deserve this? Nothing. All he could do was put his trust in God. He essentially said, God, your promise of a son is an impossibility to me. But you are the God of the impossible. And I trust you. Romans 4 clearly states that Abraham was not justified by works. He was entirely justified by faith. Saying, God, you promised you would do it. And I trust you. Now over in Genesis 22... We read of a second significant incident that took place in the life of Abram that James refers to here. God asked Abraham to take that which was most precious to him, his son Isaac, this promised child that took forever, (laughs) it seems, for them to finally have, and to sacrifice him to God. Made no sense went contrary to the promise of God. And in verse 22, look at verse 22 in James 2. James says, when Abraham was fully prepared to do what God asked him to do, his faith was made complete by what he did. In other words, his faith was validated You see, this outward act of obedience of being willing to sacrifice his son is not what saved Abraham. Abraham was already saved by faith alone back in Genesis 15 when he put his trust in God and in the promise of God. This outward act of obedience showed that Abraham's faith decision was real and that it was genuine. I mean, think of it this way. Imagine an apple tree with apples ready for the picking. Do those apples give life to that tree? Of course not. No, those apples prove that the tree is alive. And that's the point that James wants us to understand. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but if it's a true faith... If it's a live faith, it's going to show up everywhere in our lives. It's going to just ooze out of our pores. In verse 26, James gives a powerful analogy as well. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James says a dead faith is like a dead body if you've seen a dead body, you know that there is no color, there's no pulse, no breath, no motion, no warmth, there's no movement. On the other hand, if a body is alive, there is color, there is warmth, there's breath, there's motion. The same thing is true with the person who is truly a Christian or who has true faith. There will be all kinds of evidence that their faith is alive. So what are some evidences of a true faith? Well, the Bible is full of examples, which is one of the reasons we should be in reading the Scriptures all the time. But I'm just going to give you a couple of quick examples. First of all, Galatians 5.22 tells us that one evidence of true faith is our life will increasingly reflect the character of Jesus Christ. In other words, more and more, the nature of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the joy, the peace of Jesus, the patience, the kindness, the the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, and the self-control of Jesus will begin to be reflected in our lives. A second evidence of true faith is that we're going to increasingly love God and love others. When James talks about works or deeds in this chapter that we're looking at, he's referring to the royal law of God. Remember, he talked about that in verse 8 of chapter 2. The royal law is really the first and the second commandment. Loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. So how do you know that you're a true Christian? By loving God and by loving others. You love God by spending time with him alone, hearing from him through the reading of the scriptures and speaking to him through this thing we call prayer. which should be no different than you speaking to your roommate, to your spouse, or to a friend. You love God by being consciously aware of his presence all day long. Inviting him to do your day with you and listening for his promptings and asking him for his guidance and his help along the way whenever you need it. You love God by being obedient to him James uses Abraham as an example of one who not only submitted to God, but was obedient to him. One of the obvious steps of obedience, according to the New Testament, is public baptism. The church in North America, you know, has a problem. There are tens of thousands, if not millions of people who say they are Christ followers who embrace Christ as their Savior and Lord 10, 20, 30 years ago and have yet to follow Jesus in the first step of obedience in public baptism. And so I ask you, have you obeyed God in public baptism? Just so you know, we have baptisms at every now service, the night of worship, on the first Sunday evening of every month. We also offer it at other times. Just ask at the information desk. Those of you at other campuses, just talk to one of your campus pastors about it. Loving God means I don't just hear the word. I do what it says. And yes, obeying God at times will mean stepping out of our comfort zone, risking embarrassment, exercising courage, taking a risk. In verse 25, James talks about the simple faith of Rahab. She was a poor Canaanite woman. She was a pagan. She was a prostitute. And yet somehow she heard about the God of Israel. She heard about him parting the Red Sea for the people of Israel. Heard about a number of other miracles. And through all of that, she put her faith, a very simple faith, in the God of Israel. And I just want to point out that she didn't have a master's degree in theology. It was incredibly simple faith. In fact, Abraham's faith was really simple as well. You don't have to have a theological degree to have true faith. There are children among us who have amazing faith. And Rahab, she demonstrated that her faith was real and genuine by courageously hiding the spies, even though in doing so she risked her very life. True faith obeys God. Now, what God calls us to do is going to vary from person to person and from day to day. Some of you are going to hear the Spirit of God say to you tomorrow, Stop. Be still. Cease your striving. And know that I am God. Others of you are going to hear the Spirit of God say to you, get moving. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. The important thing is that our ears are attuned to His voice through the Scriptures and that we follow through on what He asks us to do. True faith loves God. True faith also loves others. Loving others involves having a heart of compassion for those in need. James touches on that right in verse 15. Loving others also involves being kind and gracious and encouraging to others. Believing the best of others. Sincerely wishing God's best for others. Rather than slandering or envying or gossiping or condemning others. 1 John 4.20 says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Now make no mistake, folks. God is looking for progress. He is not looking for perfection. No one is going to love God or love others Perfectly. Take a breath. But God is examining our hearts. And he knows whether the direction of our life, the direction of our heart is toward loving him, toward wanting to love others, or whether it's totally about us and our agenda. I'll close with this. You know, when we read and study a passage like this in James Sometimes if we're not careful We can miss the main thing that God wants to say to us And I want to be sure you don't (laughs) When we read a passage that faith without works is dead We immediately find ourselves thinking There's kind of this legalistic thing within us that pops up And we immediately find ourselves saying Okay, tell me what I got to do Give me a list, you know, of the minimum requirements Of what I have to do to be a good Christian And to get to heaven and friends, if you leave here today with that mindset, you have missed the whole point. I mean, imagine a groom saying to his bride, the day of their wedding, what's the minimal amount of faithfulness and commitment I have to give you to remain married to you? I mean, imagine him going to her, you know, the, the first day that they, they arrive home after the honeymoon and saying, okay, now, Give me a list of all the stuff I've got to do to keep you happy. Come on, just give it to me. And then spending the whole day, you know, okay, i got to check that off, check that off, check that off. Never talks or interacts with his bride. No, he's just checking off stuff to do. I mean, how dreadful would it be to be in a marriage like that? And yet so often that's how we approach our relationship with Jesus. Just tell me what I got to do. Just tell me what the least thing I have to do here in order to be a good Christian. Jesus doesn't offer us a list of rules to keep or deeds to fulfill, He offers us a friendship with Himself. He invites us to taste and see that He is good. You know, every summer, Gwen and I spend time in the pool at Fairmont trying to coax our grandchildren to join us in the pool. And when they're really young, they're hesitant to do so. I say, come on in. You know, it's awesome in here. You know, Jump in or jump to me. You're going to love this. One day we're never going to be able to get you out of, there, out of here. You know, so trust me, just jump to me and it typically takes several days until they do but when they finally do and jump to me and they realize that I'm trustworthy and I'm not going to drown them they get more and more bold and it doesn't take very long when we can't convince them to get out of the pool and friends we need to understand that this is the heart of our Lord Jesus he's inviting you into the richest, most full life imaginable. He's not trying to kill your joy. He's not trying to steal anything from you that is truly good. When God says, don't do this, or when he says, do this, he's not saying, you better do it if you want me to be happy with you. He's not saying, you better do it if you want to get to heaven. No, he's saying true fulfillment, true satisfaction in life. All that you were created for is found in a relationship with me and following me in this direction. So trust me and jump in. Trust me with your life. Let go and surrender control of your life to me. Let's be friends. Let's grow as friends. Because through me, you will experience all that I have for you. Friends, you can trust Jesus. You really can. You can bet everything you have on him. You will never find a better or a closer friend or a more secure person to place your faith in. He's our fortress. He's a rock that cannot be moved. He's totally trustworthy. And he wants to be our friend. What a privilege. Would you stand for closing prayer? Let's just open our hands to the Lord. and I just want to guide your thinking a little bit as we begin to ask this question. Lord, what are you saying to me? You know, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And that's really what James is doing here. Those of you who are Christians, ask yourself, "Is, is my faith more about knowing the right things feeling the right things believing the right things doing the right things or is it fundamentally about cultivating a friendship with Jesus you know someone once said if you were arrested for being a Christian would there be enough evidence to convict you what's God saying to you about that What is he asking you to do about it? Others of you have been struggling with doubts about whether you're really a Christian or not. Perhaps you can't remember a time that you specifically surrendered your life to Jesus and asked him to take control of your life. I want to encourage you to talk to Jesus about that right now. He knows your thoughts. He can hear you. Invite Him to make Him Lord of your life. In some of your cases, your Savior as well. Maybe you've never trusted Him. I'm going to ask those prayer partners if you would make your way up here right now. And I'm going to just invite anyone who would like prayer about any of these matters we've talked about. Or maybe you've got some questions you'd like clarification on. Make your way up here. I want to encourage you to do that. Let's just ask again those two questions now. Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what is it that you want me to do about it? thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray for every person here, Lord, that they will surrender and submit their lives anew to you, even in this moment. And that they won't just hear the word, Lord, but they will do what you're asking them to do. them today Lord with your grace Lord we are just amazed by your grace and we thank you for it we commit ourselves anew to you today in Jesus name and now may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace in the name of God the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit amen thanks for listening we hope this message has impacted you we'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected for any questions or prayer please visit our website at cschurch.ca you can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter